Bible Truth Series, and we're still dealing with the work of the Holy Spirit, and uh, we've addressed a number of areas, and we said, you know, we've asked some questions. What part did the Holy Spirit play in creation? We said it was to impart life. We said, what part did the Holy Spirit play in the Old Testament overall? Well, he mainly uh, empowered people for some special work, 
We said, what part did the Holy Spirit play during the incarnation of Christ? And of course, we recognized and realized that his part was extremely significant in every aspect of the Christian life, of, of, of Christ's life, I should say, and it included the virgin birth, the resurrection, and everything else in between. We asked, what part does the Holy Spirit play in the dispensation of grace? And of course, we know that he is predominant in that particular dispensation. We even said that we might be able to say it's the dispensation of the Holy Spirit in that regard. And again, he has a specific work in that dispensation, this dispensation that is, and that is to literally the, to call out the body of Christ. It's the formation of the church, if you will. And uh, boy, I tell you, he's, uh, he's doing that. And uh, I don't know, but uh, it seems to me that we're getting closer every day. And so we'll see if the Lord comes back anytime soon. But nonetheless, he said, what part does the Holy Spirit play in the church? And uh, we've talked about that for a little while as well. Well, today or tonight, we're going to continue our study, and we're going to continue with this question. What part does the Holy Spirit play in the world? What part does he play in the world? And so we're going to take a few minutes and consider that question tonight, and uh, we'll see what the Lord does and what he teaches us out of his word this evening. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we have together. We are glad that you're there for us in the midst of the storms. There are no doubt, Lord, that in this life we're going to face them. Uh, ourselves, our family, our friends, our co-workers. Lord, it's just uh, the world we live in. And we just ask, dear God, that you'd help us as believers, Father, to have hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that you're with us. You said you'd never leave us nor forsake us. Tonight we come to you, Lord, and we come to you uh, on behalf of a world that is in total chaos and confusion. We ask, dear God, that you would just bring peace and order. And Lord, we know in your time you will. Right now, Lord, may we experience your peace and order in our own lives. The world may be rejecting you, but we've received you. And so, Lord, you living in us, give us the peace, Father, that we desperately need, the comfort, the strength. And Lord, tonight as we consider the work of the Holy Spirit in the world, we pray, Lord, that you would help us, Father, to be better equipped to reach them with the gospel. We love you and we need you tonight. I pray you'd fill me with your Holy Spirit. May I be your mouthpiece this evening. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So the work of the Holy Spirit. Turn, if you would, to John chapter 16, verse 8 through 11. We're going to see that his work is somewhat outlined there for us. Makes it kind of easy. Notice what he says in John chapter 16, verse 8 through 11. <clears throat> John chapter 16, beginning in verse 8. I'll tell you what, go back to verse 7 since we're there anyway. Why not? That's a great verse. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. <laughs> We'd expect nothing less. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Now we've got this passage here, and it talks about this word reprove. He'll reprove the world, and he talks about sin, righteousness, and judgment. That word reprove 
it, it kind of carries the idea of, of, of convincing or convicting, if you will. And so we, we see that the Holy Spirit of God is going to be convincing or convicting the world of some things. One, of sin. Now, there's a couple of thoughts that we want to kind of understand before we move forward with this idea of, of, of the Spirit of God convicting the world of sin. First of all, when we think about conviction, we often think of conscience. And you know, conscience may produce fear and it may produce remorse in our lives, but it will not keep men or women from doing wrong. Now, it, the thing is, is that it may, it, 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 you say, why not? Why is that the case? Well, because the conscience has no power. It imparts no power. The Holy Spirit, however, imparts power and as a result can produce hope in our lives. We can change. His power changes us. Not the conscience, His power. Amen. Now, again, it, the conscience may, it, it, it basically only accuses us or it excuses us. We, we do something uh, uh, and we say, whoa, that was wrong. It either accuses us or it excuses our actions. And that's what it does. However, the Holy Spirit of God condemns us. And he said, that's it. So conscience indeed convicts men of sin against the law in that sense. And that it, it does. It'll, it'll cause them to either accuse themselves or excuse themselves based on their deeds. And when they compare themselves to the law, the conscience may convict of that sin of the law. For instance, when the law says, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not, thou shalt not covet, you know, those things, thou shalt, all of those things, we, 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 we hear those, we are told those things, we read those things in the scriptures, and the conscience convicts those of those sins, convinces them maybe it's wrong or right, but again, the conscience imparts no power, and therefore, it only accuses or excuses, but it doesn't change a person. And so it's important to recognize that. So the passage says, when he has come, talking or referring to the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin. Well, the question is then, what sin? What sin is he going to convict of then? Well, the passage says something interesting as well. Note that the passage says, of sin, why? Because they believe not on me. Because they believe not on me. So the sin that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of is not simply those sins mentioned in the law, but the specific sin of what? Unbelief then. Because again, he says, he says he's going to convict the world of sin. Why? Of sin because they believe not on me. It's the sin of unbelief that the Holy Spirit convicts mankind of in this world. That's what he does, the sin of unbelief. He's going to reprove the world of sin because they believe not on him, so to speak. Now turn to Acts chapter 2. I want you to look at Acts chapter 2, verse 22. There's no doubt the conscience. I mean, the, the, the problem with the conscience is, is that, you know, today you hear a lot of times people say, well, he has no conscience. She has no conscience. Okay, well, if the conscience is the thing that's supposed to change us, then we're in real trouble. 
But there's more to it. The Holy Spirit is the one that brings or imparts change in our life. It's not our conscience. Our conscience, again, accuses us or excuses us based on our upbringing or what we believe to be right and wrong. And let me tell you what, what I believe to be right may not be what you believe to be right. What I believe to be wrong may not be what you believe to be wrong. Now, we have the scriptures that identify right and wrong and truth, but if somebody's not in them, then they could excuse themselves. Their conscience may excuse the most heinous of crimes. But that conscience isn't going to change then. It's not going to change me. We need the Holy Spirit to do that. He empowers. Notice what it says here in Acts 2.22. Again, this is the day of Pentecost, so we see Peter charging this audience. Notice he says, ye men of Israel, verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now here he is speaking now to the, these, these, these people, and he makes it very clear, having delivered, uh, uh, being delivered by the determinate counsel. That counsel was determined to deliver Jesus Christ for, for crucifixion. They were determined. They had already made up their mind. It didn't matter. There was no evidence that would have swayed them or changed their mind. They were already determined in that regard. And this foreknowledge of God. God knew all along what was going to happen. He wasn't taken by surprise. This didn't catch him off guard at all. And he says, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now, I don't know about you, but this is a preacher now telling the people, he says, your wicked hands, uh, they crucified and slayed Jesus Christ. Now, how do they respond to that charge? We know that as a whole, uh, many of them weren't real, uh, you know, we know that uh, back in Acts chapter 7, when, when uh, Stephen got up there and started preaching like that, man, they didn't like his preaching at all. Matter of fact, Stephen in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, what'd they do to him? They ran up to the front, they grabbed him up, started gnawing on his hands and gnawing on his body. They were going buck wild on him. Man, they hated him. They finally drug him on out and stoned him. But what happened here? How'd they respond? This is wonderful. Acts chapter 2, verse 37, the day of Pentecost. And now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Wow. Peter goes on to share what they're to do. Now they were brought, what brought about this conviction concerning their unbelief? They had crucified Christ. They had rejected him as Messiah. And yet now we have their conscience, yes, being involved. But wait a second, there's more than conscience here because there's unbelief. And only the Holy Spirit can bring change. And we see them believing now. And the Bible tells us that 3,000 were saved that day. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Convicting the world of sin. So the sin that the Holy Spirit convicts men of in this dispensation is the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. Again, conscience may convict men of legal sins. Again, murder and theft, covetousness, those kind of things. It may either excuse them or accuse them, but only the Holy Spirit can convict of the sin of unbelief and bring the change necessary and needful. So when you really think about it, it's no longer a sin question, but the son question. What shall we do with Jesus? That's the real issue, isn't it? 
What shall we do with Jesus? And boy, I tell you, as we go out on the highways and hedges and we seek to compel them to come in and we try to, we, and we share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not enough to present a, a, a wonderful presentation. We need the presence of the Holy Spirit so that he brings the conviction that brings change. So what does the Holy Spirit, what part does he play in, this, in the world? First of all, to convict the world of sin. Number two, to convict the world of righteousness, he says. And we ask the question then, what is righteousness? Well, I guess we could say it's to be conformed to the standard of right or justice. To be upright, to be blameless. Now, here's the thing. It can't possibly be. We're looking at this. We're saying, no, wait a second. Whose righteousness are we dealing with here? Well, it can't be the world's righteousness, right? Because it's not, they don't have any righteousness. They have none. Turn, if you would, over to Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Again, we're talking about the world now. He's going to convict the world of righteousness. Well, it's not their righteousness, whether they're righteous or not in that sense uh, necessarily, although that'll play a factor a little later on. But, but we're going to see here, it's certainly not their righteousness that he's addressing. That's not what he's focused on here. Because they have no righteousness. Notice what it says in Romans 3.10. It says, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understand it. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They're together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. So if it's not the world's righteousness he's addressing, then whose is it? Well, we're going to find it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's the righteousness of Christ. Again, he says, he will reprove the world of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Wow, wait a second. What did Jesus do that proved him to be righteous, according to the writer then? That's what he says, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And we're going to prove the word of righteousness. Well, it's not the world's righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness. Wait a second, because why? I go to my Father and you see me no more. So what is he pointing to? What's he saying then that proved Christ's righteousness. According to the passage, it was his resurrection. His resurrection was his proof, was proof positive that he's righteous. Look, if you would, in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Again, the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is proof positive that his claims were true. Everything he said was true. And as a result, his righteousness was established. According to Romans chapter 1, verse 4, he was, quote, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness, Holy Spirit, watch this, by the resurrection from the dead. By the resurrection from the dead. Jesus confirmed his claim of deity, he established his righteousness by rising from the dead. If he would have remained in the grave, he would have been proven a fraud and an imposter. 
And that's why they placed that band of soldiers there in front of that, that stone that day. That's why they sought to keep him there. They knew that he had said he would rise three days and three nights later. Boy, they wanted to make sure he was still there after three days and three nights. Because if he wasn't, whether or not he was taken away by the disciples, whether or not, you know, somebody stole him away, I don't know. They, still, they knew it was going to open up a can of worms because the fact was is that if he wasn't in that tomb after three days and three nights, then there's going to be all kinds of questions raised and the reality of his claims would be viewed as being completed. Oh, he's righteous. He's told the truth. Everything he said is going to come to pass then. Let me tell you something. His body wasn't stolen. Those were not uh, novice that were watching that tomb for those, those three days and three nights. No, the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And as a result of that, he, 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 it's proof positive that he is who he claimed to be. And he is the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous judge. He's righteous. When we get a glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ in our life, a good glimpse, we get a glimpse of him and his righteousness. We start comparing ourselves to him. We're going to be convinced of our sinfulness. Not only that, but we'll be equally convinced of his righteousness, that, or he being righteous, I should say means that everything he said, all the promises he shared, will come to pass. That we can believe on him. Because he is righteous. His resurrection proves it. I can trust what God's word says. I can trust what he said. Because he rose from the dead. He is righteous, and therefore being righteous, he can't lie to me. Nor will he ever. And not do that. So not only does he convict the world of sin and of righteousness... But he, and it was, it's his righteousness. See, he wants the world to see his righteousness. And in comparing his righteousness to their own lives, they fall miserably short. That's what he says, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. But now he convicts the world of judgment, of sin, righteousness, and judgment. On the onset, you know, one may be tempted to believe that the Holy Spirit's trying to show, show them that they're... Um, that our end, you and I, if you will, um, isn't a very good one. That, you know what, we, we better, you know, get some things straight with God or we're going to end up in a bad place. He's convicting us of judgment. That, that's not really what's going on here. Um, what we're really doing here is what he's really trying to point out, and we're going to see this in the passage, is that he is talking about a judgment that's already passed. Um, he convicts the world of judgment. But it's not future judgment. It's going to be judgment that's in the past. You say, okay, well, let's see that. Well, again, it's not the judgment of me and you. It's not whether we're good or bad. It's a judgment of Satan himself. Look in John chapter 16, verse 11. You're already there. Notice he says he convicts of judgment. Why? Here it is, John 16, 11, when you, I guess you're not there. That's right, I had you turn somewhere else, didn't I? I just want you to go back and see it. 
it says in John 16, 11, he says, he convicts of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. See, it's a past judgment. He's saying that Satan is judged. Not will be judged, but he is judged. He was judged in the garden. Remember all the way back there in Genesis 3.15 when the Bible says, when the God said, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed and shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Again, the fall of mankind saw men, women, and saw man and woman and the serpent judged at the same time. All three were judged there in that one judgment. The serpent was told that his seed and the woman's would be at odds with one another. That there would be a constant battle raging between the two and that that seed would be the Lord Jesus Christ and the devil's seed, which ultimately will be Antichrist. God makes it quite clear that the Lord's heel, and this is, I love this part, is going to be bruised. But the reason his heel's going to be bruised is because he's going to be stomping on the head of Satan. And it's going to be Satan's head that's bruised. I think it's interesting as we're watching uh, things shape up in our world, don't think for a minute this is exclusive to our government, this is exclusive to our nation right now. This, this is a global movement that Satan is putting into motion. I don't know if we are at the end of the end or not, but what I do know is, is it's certainly shaping up a lot like that. And we are moving in a direction that is interesting to say the least. And although it is extremely scary as we look out onto the horizon of our world and the future that possibly exists, we must as believers start to get a little excited and say, whoa, wait a second, this looks a lot like he described. Uh, He could be coming back at any moment and as crazy as it's getting in the world, it looks like God's on a roll right now. Man, sometimes that doesn't bring us a lot of comfort if we're the ones forking out five, six dollars a gallon gas, and we're the ones that are afraid of nuclear holocaust, and we're the ones that are fearful of everything that they keep trying to pedal off, just like they've peddled fear for the last two years. And don't, ever, don't, let, don't let the media tell you how grim it is all the time. Shut the stupid TV off. Quit listening to them, because all you're going to do is walk away scared out of your mind. Do you know how many, I don't even want to go into it, If you would only look and see the wars over the last five years in the world and how many thousands, hundreds of thousands of people lost their lives. Folks, let me tell you, there's a reason why this one's on TV and the others aren't. Let's not get, it's been going on all along. It just happens that this one's being played up big time because there is something else in the the wings. And let me tell you something, God's in in on it. God is not being taken by surprise. He is working, he is moving the pieces He's moving the pieces. Man, I'll tell you what, I don't understand it all, but I'm going to trust him because if I don't, man, I'd lose my mind. I'm going to trust the Lord, man. In that garden, he already said, guess what, Satan? You're already a loser. You're already a loser. You're going to get your head stomped in by the Lord Jesus Christ. You're done. Now, you know what? We don't always live like that. And you know, the world doesn't view it that way, do they? The world rejects Jesus Christ. Sadly enough, the world doesn't realize that Satan's already lost the battle. He's a, it's done. He's already judged. It's done. Not only in the garden was he judged, but also on the cross. Think about it from this perspective. Satan is the author of death. I mean, when Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, 
the power of death was broken. Now, at least for the believer, right? In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, the Bible says, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Man, death had a grip, a stronghold, if you will. And that stronghold was Satan's stronghold on mankind and everyone else. But Jesus Christ went to Calvary and shed his precious, perfect blood. And let me tell you something, death doesn't have dominion anymore over the believer. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. The Bible says, and I'm going to move quickly because we're going to get this finished up. We're almost done. But for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh, verse 14, chapter 2, verse 14, Hebrews. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that hath the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. (laughs) that's good news right there, isn't it? I like that, that through death he might destroy him that hath the power of death. Jesus Christ took his place on Calvary and he died that day, and when he died, he destroyed the power of death that Satan had over all of us. Finally, in the end, he's been judged in the garden on the cross, but also... In the end, as you look at Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, it says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. Boy, Satan, the prince of this world, has been judged. He's been condemned to the bottomless pit for a thousand years. And then, in the end, when it's all said and done, he's going to be cast forever into a place called the lake of fire. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, it says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. I know that's over a thousand years away yet, that particular passage, but he's going to be locked up for a thousand years and there's going to be a millennial reign and Jesus Christ is going to sit on the throne and he's going to rule with a rod of iron and there will be peace in the world finally because the Prince of Peace will have taken his place on the throne. And until that day, there will always be wars and rumors of war. There will always be death. There will always be problems. There will always be hurt and heartache. But my friend, let me tell you, the devil's already lost. Even though he's been condemned already, his sentence hasn't yet gone into effect. He's still waiting to be cast into that bottomless pit for a thousand years and ultimately into the lake of fire at the end of that millennial reign. But you know what? Satan doesn't want the world to know that he's condemned and doomed. Because if they did know that, then they would lose, he would lose his influence over them. Hey, nobody wants to follow a loser. Everyone wants to follow a winner. But Satan is a liar. And boy, he is the father of all lies. 
And he has convinced mankind and the world and its leaders and even those working jobs day in and day out that somehow they don't need God, that he, they can rest and rely upon him. Now, that he won't necessarily always come out and say that. You're not a Satan worshiper, are you? No, I would never worship Satan. But you won't worship Christ? No. Do you realize there's only two forces in the world? But Satan so deceived mankind and he doesn't want them to know. But God's saying, listen, the Holy Spirit comes and he judges, and he, the Holy Spirit, is going to, as he puts it here, convict the world of judgment. The judgment of Satan, he's already finished. He's already done. And he can't do anything to save you because he can't even save himself. So it's the work of the Holy Spirit in this dispensation that convicts the world or convinces the world that Satan has been judged, that his power is not growing but declining, that death will soon be swallowed up in victory because of the resurrection, and that the grave has no power over the believer. If the tomb could not hold Jesus, neither can the grave hold us. Man, it's a wonderful thing that we serve the living God. You know, and as we close, let me just say this. The Holy Spirit seeks to hinder Satan in his efforts to produce his masterpiece. Satan's masterpiece is the man of sin, the Antichrist. I don't know about you, but over the last two years, and even actually uh, as our president uh, a few years ago, President Obama, took office, and in a matter of just a very, very short time, went from being a, an organizer in, in Chicago to being the president of the United States like that, I started realizing that the Antichrist could show up and be in power like that. And we look what's happened over the last two years. Our world is shaping up for a one world government like never before. And boy, I'll tell you what, we are looking for somebody with the answers. Who's going to bring peace to the world? Who's going to bring profit to the world? Who's going to raise and elevate all the poor and bring down all the rich and make everybody equal and answer all the questions and deal with all the social problems and who's going to bring peace and tranquility to the world we live in. And his Superman's going to step right on in, but not until the church has been taken out. Because see, the Holy Spirit's working still, right, in the world. He's holding back the evil He's keeping Satan from manifesting his superman. But once the Holy Spirit's gone, evil will run rampant. We think things have moved quickly in the last six months, last year, last 10 years even. Man, once the Holy Spirit's out of here, evil will go wild. And everything will fall into place. I used, to think that the, I used to think that the tribulation could be 10, 20 years after the rapture of the church. Because there's nothing in the Bible that says it has to begin the very day. But the more I see in our world things culminating and happening so rapidly, I'm not so convinced it won't be extremely soon after we're raptured out that the Antichrist shows up and that world, one world government is set up and everything's moving just like the Bible says. It goes so fast now. I want to encourage you to pray, and I want to encourage you to continue to trust the Holy Spirit. Lean on Him. He has the answers. 
Our world leaders don't have the answer. Satan certainly doesn't, but God's word does. We want peace, we need to find it in Christ. We want joy, we find it in the Lord. We want hope, it's in the word of God and it's in Christ Jesus. It's him in us. Let's make sure we're sharing that truth with others. The world needs hope. Our economy is not going to bring hope because the moment they fix one thing, another thing's going to go haywire. We need a constant. We need a consistent hope. And that's only in the person, Jesus Christ. We thank the Lord for what he's doing in our lives. And we thank him for what he's doing in the world. We don't always understand it, but we know he's at work and we know he's controlling and pushing all the buttons and moving all the pieces in the long run. He really knows what he's doing. We just have to believe that. And if we know him the way we should, we know that we can trust him to do that. Father, help us to know you better so that we do trust you. Lord, there are times it's just downright frightening what is going on in our world and in our lives. And just, the, the you know, as they start telling us what to expect, even just in our finances and Lord, just all the situations that are going on. And it's just amazing, Lord. And yet, Lord, we are believers and we have Christ in our life. Lord, you left your Holy Spirit here to, to, to call out the bride of Christ. And Lord, you're calling people out unto yourself as we speak, Lord, in the world. And you're, you're, you're assembling this body. And while you're doing that, you're convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Father, we need you. If we're going to be effective for you and if we're going to accomplish what you called us to do, we're going to need your help. Please, Father, we know we can do nothing without you. Bless us now this evening. Be glorified in everything that we do and say and think. Help us, Father, not to rush to judgment, but to always go over the word of God and really pray and seek your wisdom to take your position on things. Help us, Lord, to stay calm and rest in you and lean not unto our own understanding, but commit our ways to you. Well, thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand. Every head bowed, every eye.